praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are reading about your people, that you came to redeem, to save, to make holy, to make righteous. We're reading about the sending of your spirit coming to your people, filling them, giving them ears to hear, hearts to believe that that 3,000 would repent and believe this gospel, that you came, that you so loved us, that you gave yourself for us, that we might be brought to you and, and restored to you and to one another and to creation and even to ourselves. So we ask again, come Holy Spirit, fill us, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to believe that we too are your people and that we might better understand why, why you have made us your people that by your spirit we may again be that people. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. John Stott um, summarizes this passage with four pithy little titles, and so I will share those with you. As, as we look at this passage, I want you to see these four ingredients, if you will, or four characteristics of this early community. They were a learning community. They were a loving community. They were a worshiping community. And they were a witnessing community. We see that they were a learning community there in in the very first phrase that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, We know that this apostolic teaching has been handed down to us through the Apostles' Creed that we uh, read together. These are the basic tenets of our faith. Uh, We believe that this, uh, that the teaching of, of our holy religion is this apostolic teaching. It's both apostolic in that we claim connection to these apostles and to their teaching. Uh, the, the apostles' teaching is found in the New Testament. And so when we talk about committing ourselves to the apostles' teaching, here in this passage, they were committed to these 12 people who were there with them. They did not have these other things that we now have, but they were committed to these 12 apostles that were with them, devoted, listening to the teaching. And the apostles, we can only assume, were passing on what they had heard from the Lord Jesus, who had opened up the whole of scriptures to help them understand how we see in Luke, at the end of Luke, on the road to Emmaus, where all of the scriptures are pointing to Christ. And we know from from the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that Jesus told them, he said, go make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. This is one that is very familiar to us and and I would say quite comfortable for us in our perhaps denomination or from our particular group within the Christian world. We love to learn. So much so that 
Jamie Smith might say that we are big heads on little sticks, uh, that we can know so much and have so much information, but we aren't very good at practicing it. I hope that's not true of you, and I hope that as we look at the other characteristics, we might see that we can't just be learners, but we must be doers of the word as well. In our experience uh, of helping churches, helping communities of faith, uh, one church that we've had the pleasure of partnering with is the Caucasian Albanian Apostolic Church. Has, has anyone heard of this apostolic church? Now, you've probably heard of the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, maybe even the Coptic Church, the Armenian Church, the Ethiopian Church. Some of those are more familiar with to us. But the Caucasian Albanian Apostolic Church is also an apostolic church started by Bartholomew in the Caucasus region of of Central Asia, right there between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, right north of Iran. Bartholomew is claimed to have come, and there were three different churches that were started in that area. The Armenian church, which claims to be the first national church in church history, the, the Georgian Orthodox Church, and the Caucasian Albanian Apostolic Church. We have record of them attending the Council of Nicaea and even the Council of Chalcedon. And so this church is still in existence, and yet it almost died. And we have seen revival and renewal. The church suffered at the hand of Islam. Many of their members were, were slaughtered and killed from the 6th century up until the 10th century. But they were able to survive. They were able to maintain much of their teaching. It wasn't until communism came and atheism came that their churches were shut, their doors were shut, their priests were taken and were taken to the gulags, and that they lost their priests. They lost their apostolic secession. Their scriptures were taken. The way the church was almost destroyed was by taking their teachers and their teaching. And yet the Lord has brought about revival and renewal. And we've had the pleasure of, of walking with these brothers and sisters and seeing them return again to the Gospels. Their scriptures are now being translated into their language again. For if a church loses its teaching and loses its teachers, or even if its teachers and teachings go astray, it will no longer be a Holy Spirit Christian church. And this is a warning to us. It is something that can happen even with our emphasis on teaching. The second characteristic I want us to look at is this aspect of being a loving community. Again, this should not come as a surprise to us as Jesus summarized all of the law with two commands, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And we see it here in various words. Verse 42, it just says, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. This word devoted is, comes to all of these actions. So they devoted themselves to fellowship. And it's fleshed out more in verse 44 where it says, All who believed were together. 
It's a sign of their unity, their oneness, their koinonia, if you know that word. And all they had were in common. They were selling their possessions as needed and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as there was need. This act of love, as we see described in the other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, where he says, if you really love God, you will love your neighbor and you will give generously to them and provide for them. This is an essential characteristic of the people of God. Isn't it natural that if we have genuinely received the love of God, that we would love our brother and our sister and that we would love our neighbor. So this should not become, be a surprise to us. They were coming together. They were sharing. They were providing. And all of this requires actually knowing one another. I find that often we're willing to help each other. But we don't know enough about each other in order to really help. This is not easy, but it's essential when we first went to um, the church in Central Asia, a Korean missionary had, had gathered a small group. That small group was meeting. They were together. But there wasn't unity. Uh, they were helping each other. But there wasn't real love. They had meals together. They had worship together. They did Bible studies together. But as they sought to be a community and really love one another, divisions and animosity started to rise up among them. I'll never forget when the Korean missionary who invited us to come and, and help him and, and to help raise up leaders congratulated me at starting a Scottish revival. Apparently, a Scottish revival is when you go from about 50 to 60 to about six. In the process of trying to help this community come together and to love one another, it ended up revealing a lot of the hurt and the pain and the power and the jealousy that was among them. And it almost all but destroyed the church. This was a very difficult season for us in ministry. We had to help them define what it meant to be a part of the community. We had to encourage them, even as we did this morning, to commit to take vows of being a part of the community and to even guard the community when people were in air. All of these are acts of love, right? My son is now engaged, and so we're talking about his wedding. And you, and you think about the vows that we make when there is love. You have to make a commitment to one another. You have to voice that and express that and make promises to each other. And, and when you really love one another, you do confront one another. But these are not easy things. We can think of love as being sharing and caring and, and nice all the time. But loving is not just that. It is also being committed to one another, to that Nicene Creed element of the church of, of being holy or the Reformed understanding of the church of having discipline. That too is actually an act of love. 
And I think we struggle in our churches with, with both of those. We struggle with knowing each other well enough to know what the needs are among us that we might share. Most of you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to share. I'm generous. I'd be willing to help. But I just don't know anybody who, who has needs. We have become insulated and separated from, from the needs. So this act of, of learning, this act of sharing and caring and even confronting as necessary continues with the third mark of worshiping. We see that there in this word where they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Both of these are, are in the definite article since I, I believe here that the breaking of bread could just generally mean a potluck like we're going to have later. Hope you can join us. Um, I think they had meals together regularly. And so I think that is, that is true. Even within the Jewish tradition, just the very act of hospitality and having meals together was done in a ceremonial way. It had meaning. It wasn't just putting food on the table and saying, hey, help yourself. There was, there was a meaning to the hospitality and to the fellowship. And I think it does lead us to the table. The Lord's Supper, as, as Jesus taught them to have bread together. So I do think it means that. And here, the prayers, being a Jewish community primarily, were, were various fixed prayers within the Jewish community. And later in Acts, we see that they went to the temple to pray at, at a certain time of day. They went up to the um, housetop and they prayed. So there were fixed hours of prayers and that's where many of our Christian traditions get fixed times of prayer. It comes out of this Jewish tradition. I think too I can imagine that it, it was the Lord's Prayer in the document that was found um, from this time period called the Didache which just means the teachings which is also claimed to be the teachings of the apostles. There's the admonition to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. So I imagine this devotion to prayer was Jewish prayers, was the Lord's prayer where Jesus taught us to cry out our Father who art in heaven. And it was a time of prayer. Which these things, the, the table and prayers, are symbols of worship. And we see that further highlighted farther down in the passage where it says in 46... Day by day, they attended the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This is a symbol of both formal and informal gatherings for worship. They went to the temple to, to worship. They went and in homes had worship. It was something they were doing regularly. And it's this vision of this Christian community that has... Uh, given us a vision for what we are attempting to do across the Muslim world. So in our current role, we have leadership over all of our different ministries within the Muslim world with our denomination. And this vision that we've put before our teams is to mobilize worshiping communities. Uh, so we talk about starting churches for me, that has become like a very difficult task in our context. It feels like the long-term goal. So how do you have this long-term goal of planting churches and have a short-term goal that 
helps contribute to the long-term goal. And so what I encourage our teams is that if you're not worshiping as a community, as a family, as a team, how can you expect to start a church that will become an organized, formal, worshiping community? If it's not something we're doing personally, and even in small groups, and even at home, and, and, and on our teams, how can we do it? How can we expect or think that we will do it as a large community? And so this has become an encouragement for us in areas where there are no churches. So we say, oh, there's these places where there are no churches, but we have a team there. So again, we get into some of our ecclesiology and what does it mean to be a, a particularized church, a mission church, a church plant, or a, a worshiping community. And so as a part of our church planting work in Central Asia, one of the churches that we work with started a business to help mobilize believers to go to areas where there were not churches. Because if they went on as in the business, they were received rather than going as an evangelist, for example. And so this business was a handicraft business. The handicraft business, there are many uh, small business owners out in the regions who work with metal, wood, carpet weaving, glass. And so through this, we were able to assist believers to go into these areas and meet people in towns and villages where there were no churches. So I want to tell you about one of those. One of those was El Denis and Simuzer. She made this beautiful application work. So she would take glass or metal and over it, she would glue individual threads and she would glue them in such a way that they would make a beautiful pattern. Paisley's is one of the national patterns of Central Asia. And so that would be a symbol that she put on it. In our relationship with her, we would go and we would visit her. We would go and have meals with her. We would eat with her. We would break bread with her, with her and her family. And through that, we began to share with her, share with her the apostles' teachings. And she began to learn more. But one time she asked us, how do you pray? And so we taught her the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we came back later. And she said, Neil, I've been praying the Lord's Prayer both in the morning and in the evening. And I'm thinking, you're not even a Christian. You're not supposed to do that. But the Lord, in her reading of the apostles' teachings, the readings of the Injil, of Jesus' teachings, of learning to pray, she prayed. She began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord changed her heart and brought her to faith. But it wasn't just through reading, and it, was, and it was also through prayer, but it was also we mobilized the church. The church would take, she had two daughters, would take them clothes. Uh, she lived in a, in a small home with a dirt floor in an area that would get cold. And so they came and provided proper insulation and a, and a simple wood floor for her simple home. 
But we were able to work with the church to do that. And so when she came to faith, when she put her faith in Christ, she was already a part of a community. That's how the gospel goes forth. Through these learning, loving, worshiping communities. And we see in our passage the nature of these communities. We see these adjectives describing them. I mentioned already in that very 42, it says they were devoted. And this is a, a, a Greek word that is like they were continually practicing these things. There was a steadfastness about it. They were, they were regularly committed to the teachings and to fellowship and to hospitality and to the Lord's Supper and to prayers. And then we see in verse 43 that there was an awe. This is a, that kind of one of those fearful words. There was this, there was this meeting with, with the real and living risen Christ that gave them pause. There was this fear of God that came upon them. But they weren't stuck with that. We see in verse 46 that there were glad, rejoicing, generous hearts. And as we read the rest of the, the book of Acts, we see that this are, these are the characteristics of the, the people of God. That they have this boldness, this gladness, this devotedness, this generous joy. I don't know about you, um, but that's not always a picture of me. I don't always feel that way. I don't always act that way. And I need to remember that, that when I'm looking at this cloud of witnesses, if you will, and I'm considering them and I'm, I'm asking, Lord, I see this historic church, these people of God, this spirit-filled church. That's who I want to be like. But, but then I look at my own heart and I look at myself, and as we're trying to start churches like that and encourage believers to be that, we see a disconnect. And so I find great refreshment in Hebrews 12 after this Hebrews 11 reflection on all these people of faith this admonition to say, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In this church planting business, it is easy to get weary and faint-hearted. That reminds me of this children's story. I think it's called like the big home or something like that. But it's this story of a snail Story of a snail who has a shell and, and desires a, a nicer shell. Desires to, to kind of build upon it and add things to it to make it a nicer and more glorious shell. And, and 
they're eating in the cabbage patch and you know, the, the other snails are, are kind of running around eating. And this, this one snail is, is making a very beautiful, beautiful shell for itself. Well, they run out of cabbage and they need to move. And the other snails can move. But this snail cannot and is no longer because of the house it built. I don't know about you, but this passage of throwing off those things that so easily entangle, again, remind me of those cakes that get made in those competitions, and they're so large, you're just waiting for it to tip over because it has more than four ingredients. <laughs> they have added so much to that cake that it's going to tumble at any moment, and even the judges look at it and are, are trying to evaluate it, and they're waiting for it to tip over. And I just wonder how much we've added to what the church is or added to what the gospel is that, that people don't find it refreshing, don't find it encouraging, don't find it to be that invitation that Jesus says, come unto me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And yet this group of people, as they engaged the world around them, were a witnessing church. They, in how they lived and what they did, what they were committed to, their ethics, their love for one another, their worship, and yet we read Acts as well, their sufferings, their persecutions, their martyrdom, was wildfire. We see that Acts 1.8, Jesus' commission fulfilled where the gospel went out. It couldn't be contained. They were praising God. And in that process, somehow they had favor with all the people. I don't think this is an internal favor they had. They had favor with, with the non-believers about them. And we read church history and we're like, favor? They were lanterns and fed to lions. How's that Favor? There was a respect in their suffering. They were persecuted. And yet, because of their love for one another, their love even for those that were not their own, they were respected. And this was a witness. And I think God blessed that. And we see here in verse 47 that the Lord, not on their, not, not them, the Lord, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, I know it's not the main contributor or the main factor to perhaps consider, but in these different churches that we work with, if we see them stagnating and we don't see people coming to faith, and you know, again, day to day, that's a pretty high bar. We see people coming to faith month by month, year by year. Uh, we're generally encouraged. Have we allowed our bar to get too low? Should we be longing to see people coming to faith? Do we believe there are that many unbelievers around us? As we look at the world as a whole, in, in my current role, uh, we are saying that 40% of the world is not just not Christian, is without access to the gospel. 40% of the world. 
24% of the entire world is under the veil of Islam. And most of them have little to no access to the gospel or to a church. And so that's what the Lord has called us to. Has called us to, to, to believe that he wants us to go and to be a worshiping community that loves him and loves others. To demonstrate to them the love of God and to call them in to community, to worship him because he is worthy and because he has promised that he would bring people in and, and his means for bringing people in is, is by sending out people. And so the truth of Jesus' prayer that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few rings so true. And so we would ask you to pray to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers, to send workers, that 40% of the world would not be without the gospel. And that just like in Acts 2, I would challenge you and encourage you to pray as well, that Christ's Presbyterian church would be a learning church, would be a loving church, would be a worshiping church, would be a witnessing church whereby Greenville would be or Winterville would be saturated with the gospel North Carolina the United States to the ends of the earth would you pray with me Lord Jesus we thank you we thank you that you have not left us without a picture of your church, that you, had help, you have helped us to understand what you are doing and why you are doing it. We ask now that you would help us to do that. We cannot do that in and of ourselves. We need Holy Spirit to come, to fill us, to empower us, to be the church that you have redeemed us to be. Come, Holy Spirit, we ask now in Jesus' name, amen.